modesty is all in the news right now because a mom of a Notre Dame student wrote a letter asking the female students to please stop wearing leggings. They're so form-fitting, you may as well be naked. Today, it's the To Love, Honor, and Vacuum podcast. I'm Sheila from ToLoveHonorAndVacuum.com, where we like to talk about marriage as a passionate adventure and not a giant to-do list. And because modesty has so much been on the news, I thought that it might be worth turning one of my favorite posts that I've written into a podcast. Some of my regular readers will have already heard this one and read this one, but I know a lot of people just listen to the podcast, and so I thought this was important to do in this format Let's tackle modesty. How many times have you heard modesty talked about in the form of don't be a stumbling block for him? I actually saw that on Twitter. That's what made me decide to run this one today. Someone posted a link to a podcast where a pastor quoted 1 Timothy 2.9, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control with the caption, bikinis and leggings are underwear, not outerwear. And then another woman commented on that same thread saying, if Christ tells us to die to self, I am very sure he means our fashion interest too. I stopped wearing bikinis and tight clothing when the Spirit revealed to me how I cause men to lust after me. If you want to cause them to stray, you go ahead, but I don't. All right. We don't want to cause the guy to stray. We don't want to be a stumbling block. Is that the proper way to look at this whole modesty debate? So let me jump in and let's take a closer look at the scripture today. First, I would hope that we would all agree that Jesus lays the blame for lust at the man's feet. If you look in the Bible, Jesus says that if a man lusts after a woman, he has already committed adultery in his heart, and it is better to cut out his eye than to lust. He never once says that it's a woman's fault. But that's when we usually throw in this caveat. Yes, Jesus may have said that lust is the guy's sin, but the Bible also says that causing him to sin is the woman's sin. We say that we believe there's no excuse for lust, but then we're quick to point out that women are really to blame because of how they dress. People use a lot of different scriptures for this idea, but I'm going to focus on two, since all the scriptures basically echo one of these two approaches. 1 Corinthians 8 focuses on not causing your weaker brother to stumble, and then Matthew 18 verses 6 to 9 focuses on how it's better to have a millstone around your neck than to cause a little one to stumble. So let's look at how both of these arguments relate to whether it is actually the woman's fault if a man lusts after her. Okay, let's deconstruct the weaker brother argument first. We should change our behavior to look after the weaker brother so that he doesn't stumble. Both Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 use the weaker brother argument. Paul says that once we're in Christ, we have great freedom. We can eat meat sacrificed to idols, for instance, because we no longer have any idols. But if you have a brother or a sister who thinks that it's wrong to eat meat sacrificed to idols and you glibly do eat meat right in front of them and then they follow you and do it as well, then you've now encouraged them to violate their own consciences and that's how you cause them to stumble. In other words, the stumbling that Paul is talking about here is not committing an actual sin. This is a really important distinction. I want you to get that. The stumbling is not lusting or stealing or lying. The stumbling that Paul is referring to in these passages is violating your conscience and your vow to God. So the concern in this passage is that we cause someone to stumble when we undermine their faith. Paul is not addressing the scenario where a woman may cause a man to lust. And this is important. 
While Paul is talking about how we can sin against someone by being a stumbling block, he is not saying that we bear the responsibility for someone committing a sin. He is saying that we bear the responsibility for weakening someone's faith. So can a woman weaken a guy's faith by what she wears? Well, yeah, I think probably she can. If she deliberately decides to exercise her freedom in Christ in front of her male brothers who are really struggling and does so knowing that they are struggling, she can make him think, I really can't get over this sin. And she can cause his faith to weaken. So yes, this passage applies. But hold on a second. It's not that simple. Because who is the weaker brother in most of these scenarios? We think of the weaker brother as being the one that's the more susceptible to sin. But that is not who Paul considers to be the weaker brother. In this case, Paul calls the weaker brother the one who does not have as much knowledge and the one who is not as mature in the faith. So in many cases in our Christian culture, teenage girls are being asked to change what they wear for the sake of adult men who are pastors, elders, even family members. Okay, I was on um, Moody's Up for Debate show a while back talking about modesty, and this scenario was presented. What do we do when a woman who is seeking walks into church wearing something really inappropriate, like a skimpy sundress? How do we tell her that she's a stumbling block? You don't, because in that situation, she is the weaker sister. The men are more mature in the faith. It's her faith that God is most concerned with. He leaves the 99 to find the one. And here's what we need to get, people. What if setting a modesty dress code actually becomes a stumbling block for women because it weakens their faith? Like, if women can be the weaker brother here, or the weaker sister, then let's see if this scripture can actually be turned on its head with the modesty issue. Here's a comment that was left on my blog. When I was a teacher at a Christian school in my 20s, I ended up on the dress code committee in charge of revisions to the existing dress code. Because the building was not air-conditioned, they had decided to allow shorts in warmer weather months, early fall and late spring. We had to determine an appropriate length. In the course of the discussions, I was forced to stand up and be the example of why longer shorts are better. The administrator in the group explained to the room that I was a good example of the problem with shorts, as my legs were just too long, and no matter what I wore, unless it was a long baggy skirt, I would be a stumbling block for men, and my body was really just a problem. I can't tell you how damaging it is to be told by your boss that God made you wrong, and your existence is essentially a problem for every male person that you ever meet. Okay, whose faith was being weakened in that scenario? The men's who were worried about this woman's legs or this young woman in her 20s who was being told that God made a mistake when he made her? Well, here's a comment that was left on Facebook about the same post. I was weeks away from my 21st birthday. I had recently moved to a new area. I was attending a wedding. The first I had been to after my engagement fell apart. I shopped for weeks looking for a dress I felt beautiful in. I was sitting at a table with the only people at the shindig that I knew. There was an older lady in her mid to late 70s whom I was greatly looking forward to getting to meet because I had heard about her kindness and grace. She sat next to me and informed me that I needed to find somewhere else to sit because my dress was too low and it was making her husband uncomfortable. I was shocked. I immediately left and cried in the parking lot before driving myself home. About 10 years later, I pulled that dress out of storage. Resting my pointer finger on my collarbone, my ring finger touched the neckline of the dress. It was then that I realized my clothing was not the issue. Okay, in that scenario, whose faith is being weakened? The 70-something man who had been a Christian his whole life, or the 21-year-old grieving woman with a heart to be accepted into the Christian community?
Or how about this that happened to my girls when they started on a praise team when they were in their early teens? It was a woman, actually, who came up to them to remind them not to wear skirts while they were on praise teams because the men in the front rows might look at their legs. And so my girls get all creeped out thinking, you mean the elders and the pastor who are sitting in the front row are going to be sinning because they're looking at my legs? Like they're thinking, what are these adult guys doing looking at my legs? That was a really creepy thing to hear. So if we want to use the don't cause a weaker brother to stumble passages to address modesty dress codes, we have to be intellectually honest and say that while we don't want men's faith weakened, we must also never ever cause women's faith to weaken by saying there's something inherently evil about their bodies. That just doesn't work. The logic does not stand up for that one. So let's look at the other way that people often address this issue, which is the causing a little one to stumble argument. In Matthew 18, verses 6 to 9, Jesus says this, and I'll read the whole thing. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Unlike the Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 passages, here we are talking about causing someone to commit an actual sin, not just weakening the faith. This passage at face value does look like it can be applied to the scenario where a woman can cause a man to lust. So what can we learn about modesty dress codes from this passage? Well, Jesus is referring to a deliberate action that lures someone away from him. In this scenario, I don't believe that Jesus is talking about causing someone to sin by accident. Indeed, in the Old Testament, there were cities of refuge for those who had caused bloodshed by accident, and those people were treated very differently from those who had deliberately shed blood. In everything, the state of our hearts matter. So if we are deliberately dressing in such a way that we are aiming to entice men to lust, then we are sinning, period, absolutely. We should not wear attire with the intention of causing men's thought to wander or with trying to seduce anyone. But what if that's not our intention when we get dressed? When I was on that moody radio show, a woman called in with this comment. I was once in church and I saw an absolutely gorgeous woman. For a minute I felt really jealous because I'm a larger woman and I asked God, why can't I look like her? And God told me, be grateful because you don't cause men to sin in the way that she does. Now, this woman may have believed that was God's voice, but I firmly believe that it wasn't. This woman was saying that another female, through no fault of her own, caused men to sin simply because of how her body looked, and God saw her body as a source of evil. Follow that argument logically, and what you have is this. Some people, even if they love God with their heart, soul, mind, and strength, will cause people to sin simply because of who they are and how they were made. Even if they do nothing, they are a stumbling block that may cause someone to sin. But what does God say about stumbling blocks in this passage? That it would be better for them to have a millstone tied around their neck and be thrown into the sea. Is that really what we believe? That a woman through no fault of her own other than simply existing would be better off if she were thrown into the sea because of the effect she has on the men around her? I would hope not, although honestly I'm afraid that a lot of people do think that. 
logically, that's where the argument goes. Women's bodies are inherently sinful. Therefore, women are inherently bad because they cause others to stumble. And so it would be better for them to be thrown into the sea. Aside from this being completely oppressive, that argument doesn't even hold up when you read the verses following. And that's because even in this scenario, Jesus still puts the responsibility on the one sinning. Yes, the person who causes the sin would be better off thrown into the sea. But then what does Jesus say is the solution? He points back to the person who is sinning in the very next verses. He says, if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. Jesus never lays the responsibility for sin at someone else's feet. Even in the passages that we often use to claim that women's clothing choices can cause men to sin, God still doesn't lay the blame at women's feet. If anything, we should be using these passages to show that women's faith matters too, and that we should never put undue burdens on women for other people's sins. So what can we conclude about these two stumbling block passages? These passages appear to be saying that it's wrong for women to deliberately dress in order to entice men to lust, both because they can weaken their faith and can cause them to sin. However, the passages also say that it is wrong to shame women about their bodies. In addition, scripture clearly says that women are not to blame if a man actually does lust, and that if a man lusts just because of the way a woman looks when she is not deliberately trying to get him to do anything, then that is entirely on him. Saying definitively then that women bear the responsibility for men's consciences because of the do not cause a brother to stumble just doesn't hold up biblically. And what I would say to that pastor who is quoting 1 Timothy 2.9 and saying that this means that leggings are underwear, not outerwear, is that you haven't even read 1 Timothy 2.9 because 1 Timothy 2.9 is not about what women look like because of their body shape. First Timothy 2.9 is telling women not to dress expensively so that you don't cause a class divide. What Paul was concerned about when he was telling women to dress modestly was that we don't create a church where people are going to feel uncomfortable and like they don't fit in. And that's why when I was talking about modesty recently, what I said is that we need to look at what the norm is in our culture, and then we need to just be a shave on the left side of it. It's obviously wrong to dress too immodestly. You don't want to be at that end of the spectrum. But if we're at the other end of the spectrum, where we are so modest, you know, in the long denim skirts and the oversized t-shirts that other people are going to feel uncomfortable when they're with us, then we're not really doing the gospel any good either. Okay, so let's get away from this whole idea that women can cause men to stumble. And let's get back to just treating ourselves with respect respecting men to do the right thing and to honor women, asking women to dress as if they respect themselves and that they respect God, and to get away from this idea that anybody is responsible for anyone else's sin. That's a much more faithful reading of the scripture, and that's a much more healthy message for everyone. Are you part of the To Love, Honor, and Vacuum community? Sign up for my emails and you'll get weekly Friday updates with behind-the-scenes pictures and info, exclusive video content, stuff I'm wrestling with, and more. You'll also get access to our free resource library with over 25 marriage and parenting freebies, my free five-day sex pep talk, and more. Sign up on the homepage at tolovehonorandvacuum.com. It's Millennial Marriage Time, and today Rebecca and I are going to be talking about something that can sometimes go sideways for a lot of millennials, which is the danger, the potential minefield of writing your own vows. 
Yes, indeed. So I found this great article from Brides Magazine, which has so much seriously, seriously bad advice. Okay, Probably some of the worst <laughs> we've ever heard when it comes yes. to the sacredness of your vows. Yes, but uh, she they give examples of some really bad vows, which I agree are really bad. Like, for instance, you will never feel alone or abandoned or lied to or misunderstood. You will never have to worry about anything again. <laughs> Because I am Jesus. Yeah, that doesn't quite work. Yeah, no, not so um, much. Even yes. Jesus doesn't promise those things, let's be honest. <laughs> Jesus yeah. says even when you are alone and you are worried. like. <laughs> yeah. Or this one's good. Our marriage is a salve for the wounds brought on by living, a place in which lust is endlessly safe, and our friendship will always be warm and abound. I don't even know what that means. Well, no, and there's really bad parallelism in the last sentence because it's like it's combining... A passive verb with an active verb, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the thing that we're mainly concerned about is that there's this trend of writing our own vows. But I worry that whenever we do write our own vows, instead of using traditional vows, we can forget really important parts of what we're vowing. Exactly. Now, our, my daughter, Katie, she wrote her own vows. Mm -hmm. um, so did I, actually. But we said them in addition to the traditional vows. Exactly. Because you want to make sure that you have your bases covered. And the traditional vows have been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. They were put a lot of thought, a lot of thought was put into them. And they kind of cover all the bases. It's, yeah, they cover some pretty important stuff. <laughs> and they cover a lot of stuff that you don't necessarily think of when you are the age of the average person getting married. Right? The av Millennials get married around their late 20s mm -hmm. on average. And when you're in your late 20s, you aren't necessarily thinking hmm, I wonder what'll happen if my wife gets diagnosed with MS when she's 41. Right. You don't necessarily think of, what if our first kid has autism? You don't think of, you know, what happens if one of us is severely disabled at a car crash and can't work anymore and our quality of life drops significantly. Mm. What you're thinking of are those romantic first few years where you're living in a matchbox apartment and eating ramen and then eventually you get your white picket fence house and you have your two perfect children and everything works great and they go to college and become lawyers. Mm -hmm. And it's so fantastic. And it's easy to not think about the really important things that are put in vows for a reason when you're young and in love and in a really good place in life. Exactly. Exactly. I remember we went to a wedding um, once a uh, long, long time ago and uh, they had written their own vows, which were really lovely. They honestly were really lovely. But at the end of them, I realized they didn't actually vow to forsake all others. Like they kind of missed <laughs> that one. And that's kind of important. You know, <laughs> it really is. It really is. But that's exactly why Connor and I did decide to use traditional vows and not write our own vows because we got married when we were 20 years old. Connor was 21 and I was 20. Yeah, okay. You were kind of babies. Yeah. <laughs> we were babies, you know, and I think we had a pretty good understanding that we didn't necessarily understand everything. And we had a really huge respect for the sacredness of marriage and the long-term tradition of the Christian marriage ceremony. Mm -hmm. Because to us, it was a really big deal. It wasn't just, oh, this is going to be so nice and I'm going to post a really cute video on my Instagram of our specific vows and that didn't go through my head at all because I was just like, no, I want to make sure I get this right because this is the rest of my life in front of me. Mm-hmm. I know, and so let me just read you some of this really bad advice from Brides Magazine, okay? So, <laughs> one of the things they say is avoid words like always or never. 
Well, I mean, why nose. would you want to promise to always stay true and to never <laughs> cheat? I mean, what if you wanted to cheat at year 18? Then you'd be boxed in. I know. Like, you know, I will always stay with you even when you get sick. Mm, well, why would you want to vow that? Yeah, I think we're forgetting what vows actually mean. I think Vows I think, are about always or never. Yeah, That's what I, vows I, are. I think what we've confused is we think that vows are about telling people and stating what my feelings are for the relationship right now. Mm-hmm. And that's not what a vow is. A vow is actually a promise that you make. That you it's a will, covenant. Yes, that you will do certain actions no matter what your feelings are. Yes. And that's something that I think millennials have a hard time with in general is the idea of not living for what feels right in the moment all the time. Mm-hmm. And instead mm-hmm. sticking with the sticking through the hard times so that you can get to the good times ahead, even if it's not for another 15 years. Right. I mean, one of the, one of my favorite quotes, and I forget who said this, is I think more marriages would stay together if more people realized that the best sometimes comes after the worst. Exactly. You know, because we say for better or for worse, but then when the worst comes, we think that it's time to leave. Now, I, I need to put in my caveat here that I do put in all the time. I am not somebody who believes that divorce is always wrong. I actually mm-hmm. think that there are many times where a spouse has already broken the covenant through addiction or abuse or adultery. And if you file for divorce, all you're doing is making legal what the spouse has already done. Yeah, in those cases, you're not the one who's breaking the covenant. If you've been abused in a marriage, yes. that covenant has been destroyed by that spouse already. Yeah, so that's not what we're talking about here. But I do think that it is very, very important to vow certain things. Um, and, and so if you do want to write your own vows, for sure, write them. But keep in mind the traditional ones. So what are, what are the big things in the traditional ones? Like in sickness and in health. Mm-hmm. You know, that... for richer, or for poorer, mm-hmm. um, forsaking all others for as long as we both shall live. Yeah, those are big things. And um, those are vows that you're making. And I think, you know, you and I were talking last night about the in sickness and in health one is that we often think about that in terms of our own sickness, but in sickness, like the condition of sickness that could that could hit a family with your child. Like you could have a child who's autistic. You could have a child um, who's got some major developmental delays. And a lot of the time when you have a kid who has some sort of either neurodevelopmental disorder like autism or severe ADHD or intellectual disability, you know, or where it really becomes quite stressful for the family, or if you have a kid who struggles with severe mental health issues or just severe, you know, physical disabilities, mm-hmm. a lot of marriages don't make it through that. Right. And so I think when you're, when you're valuing in sickness and in health, you're not just valuing about each other's sickness and health. You really are valuing about the whole family. Like I am going to be there. I'm going to stay. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's so powerful. Yeah. And a vow matters. Like a vow is a promise that you're making and we've really gotten away from that. So I disagree with brides. Um, like for instance, they say, mention the super specific and even the slightly weird stuff, you know, because it's important to get laughter from your vows. No, it's not. No. <laughs> no. No, it's actually really important to be sacred. And this is coming from someone who my mother has said it's really funny that Connor and my love languages seem to be being sarcastically affectionate towards each other. <laughs> like we're complete goofballs and we're ridiculous and we took our marriage vows incredibly seriously. It's not that you have to be stuffy 
in order to take your vows seriously and see them as something sacred. It's just everything in its place, right? Yeah. Some things are funny. And that's what the speeches at your reception are for. Yes. You know? Do funny speeches. That's, yes. That's where the fun is. You have the sacred ceremony, and then you got the after party. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's what your reception is. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's where a lot of these, the laughter and the lightheartedness and the celebration, that happens later. But the marriage needs to be sacred. Yes. I absolutely, yeah, and, and I think that's why it was really important for me that, that both you and Katie got married in a church. Um, I know mm-hmm. lots of people like to get married outdoors, and I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing, but whatever, wherever we get married, we need to make it a sacred thing. People need to feel like this is a serious covenant, and I, I think we're trying too hard to make weddings romantic. Or Instagram or Pinterest friendly. Exactly, and, and we're missing out on that sacred. Yeah, and I think there are times when writing your own vows is important, actually. On top of traditional yeah. vows. I always would, like, personally, I would always recommend doing them on top of traditional vows. I loved how Katie and David did theirs. They did the traditional vows first, and then they did their written vows. Yeah. And their written vows, because they had a unique relationship exactly. with David being in the military, so a lot of stuff came into play And I there. think, especially um, if you're marrying, if you're going to become a step-parent, I think that could be quite meaningful to, like, vow to take their children as your own. You yeah. know, like, your children are my children. You know, mm-hmm. you are bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, like that kind of, almost like the Ruth to Naomi promise. Actually, when your aunt and uncle got married, um, uh, my brother-in-law married a second wife, and the second wife really involved the kids in the marriage ceremony and took them all yep. on, and that was very powerful. They did it was lovely, incredibly powerful. They did a lovely sand ceremony where all four of them, you know, created this lovely um, sand what do you call that thing? Uh, we all pour sand in. Sculpture. It's not sculpted, but it, it was it was quite moving, and and that's exactly it. Is if you have a specific situation that is unique, such mm-hmm. as you know having the kind of job like a mil- like the military, where you are just going through a lot more than other couples, or maybe there are stepchildren involved or something like that. I could totally see the the beauty and the importance of writing your own vows on top of the traditional ones because you have more to vow to yes, than the yes. average couple does. Yeah, but let's remember that they are vows. They are not just statements of how you feel about the relationship. These should be vows. They should be sacred. And they don't need to be funny. <laughs> <laughs> You know, so forsake all others, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, those matter. Exactly. (laughs) And, And it's okay to say always and never when it matters. Our churches are filled with Christian patty answers about marriage. Something wrong? Pray about it. Is he watching porn? Have more sex. Is he not leading? Submit more. Pat answers sometimes work, but not always. And God doesn't work in Pat answers. He works in the messiness of life. Nine Thoughts That Can Change Your Marriage is my book where I get a little messy. Join me in my journey away from Pat answers and towards healthy, authentic marriages. Nine Thoughts That Can Change Your Marriage. Because your marriage should be great. Time for our reader question this week. And this is one I get kind of passionate about. Okay, ladies, stop faking it. Please. Okay, she writes, My husband feels that I'm depriving him of something vital if I don't orgasm during sex. I've never faked an orgasm. Good, I'm glad. I do wiggle around a lot and fake being sexually aroused because he likes noisy sex and it makes him orgasm faster. Oh, please, ladies, why do we do this to ourselves? Okay, he seems to accept that as an indication that I've enjoyed myself and I don't tell him any differently. 
The truth is, sex for me is no longer about chasing orgasms. Also, I can't physically handle that level of stimulation anymore. I used to be very heavy, and everything was protected by layers of fat and skin. Now I'm thin, and everything is exposed, so to speak. So my question is, is female orgasm required in order for a couple to have good sex? Should a female make an effort to orgasm merely to please her partner? My personal feeling is... He always orgasms, so he gets what he wants. What's the big deal if I don't want the same thing? It's not like he can feel it. Really common question. <laughs> there are so many things I could say about this. I probably need to answer it in like three or four segments. So really quickly here. Sometimes I think we women go through life sexually as if we're colorblind. Like as if we can't even see something and it doesn't even register with us. Like I know that women's... Uh, arousal and desire is far more responsive than a man's is. In other words, we tend to kick in once we start and once we decide we're going to start. We don't, a lot of women don't feel this overwhelming need for sex or for orgasm or anything just as you're going through life. Some women do, absolutely, but a lot of women and this reader definitely would fall into that category, do not. So for them, if you're not going through life not wanting to orgasm, you can live perfectly fine without it. So you think, what's the big deal? But even if you can live perfectly fine without it, and even if you don't feel this need for it right now, it doesn't mean it wouldn't make your life better or that it's not something absolutely amazing. And I think that's where, in a way, we have to get back to faith. And we have to say, look, God made my body to be able to do this and God did that as a gift to me and why would I want to refuse that gift? And and when we start asking ourselves that question, maybe we'll get a better orientation towards this. Okay, but I do want to talk about this whole faking thing. When you fake, whether it's faking orgasm or faking arousal, and you do that on a long-term basis, eventually you're going to get pretty sick of sex because it's really degrading to you. It's like you're faking and he can't even tell it, which makes him seem kind of silly and stupid in your mind. I mean, if he can't even tell, then he doesn't even really know you. And the whole point of making love is that it's this deep knowing. As soon as you put deception there, you're no longer knowing each other. You really are turning sex into only a physical thing. That is not what most husbands want. It really isn't. That's what we've been taught. I know I talked about that in Love and Respect. That's certainly what a lot of Christian teachings teach is that the man needs physical release. But that isn't just what he wants. What he wants is to feel really connected to you. And a lot of that connection is us being able to turn off our minds, to turn off all the things that are going in, in our heads and surrender to the moment. Um, and a lot of that connection is being able to completely let go and being able to completely be vulnerable. That's really what passion is. It's that letting go of control and being vulnerable. And that's what he wants to experience with you. And that's not a bad thing to want. Now, is it a bad thing for him to want it every time or for him to expect you to orgasm every time? Yeah, I think it is because sometimes women just get in a state of mind where no matter what he does, it isn't going to work for us tonight. And we just want to give him a gift. Totally valid. Totally understand that. But it should be part of your relationship, nevertheless, at some way. Okay, like this shouldn't be something which you completely rule out. And if she's saying that sex no longer feels good or that there's way too much stimulation because her body has changed, well, that's when you get to embark on a whole new research project and figure out what feels good for you. But faking is never a good thing. 
if you do that over a prolonged period of time, he thinks that he's actually physically satisfying you when he's not. And then he starts to think, when I touch here, she gets aroused because you're moaning or whatever. And so he thinks he's doing a good job. And so he's going to continue to do things which actually bother you physically and which make you feel lousy, which make you have to deceive him even more. And it just is a really, really bad cycle to get into. And so we need to just be honest. You know, tell him, you know what, honey, tonight, I just don't know if it's going to work for me, but I'm here for you. Um, But also, even in those nights where you don't think it's going to work for you, just surrender to the moment. You never know what's going to happen. Let him learn how to touch you and really give him honest feedback. And just don't cut orgasm out of your life. Because yes, you may not feel this overwhelming need for it. But that doesn't mean that you wouldn't benefit from it. It doesn't mean that it isn't important to your relationship. And that ability to be completely vulnerable with each other, to be completely carried away with each other, to be completely passionate with each other, that is something important. And I'm just worried that so many of us women are cutting that out of our lives, thinking that it doesn't really matter when we were created for so much more. And that really does make me sad. I love this comment that was left on the blog last week, and I hope that it'll give you guys a lot of hope too. I like to feature a comment that comes in through email or the blog or Facebook or wherever that I found particularly helpful. And here's one that is totally in line with what we've been talking about this month, about how we can change the dynamic in our marriage. A woman writes, even though I know my husband is a good guy, his harshness had really worn away at the intimacy of our marriage. I always felt like I was a kid in trouble, and I hated that dynamic. I finally went to counseling this year, and she told me to read Boundaries by Cloud and Townsend. Holy game changer! I highly recommend it. The next time he got upset with me, the kid's messy game closet, I calmly said, You may not talk to me like that. If this is really important to you, you can come find me and talk to me when you're calm. And I walked away. Well, guess what? He cleaned it up himself, and then he came and found me and apologized for his temper. I only had to call him out one more time, and he hasn't been harsh with me in three months. I never thought this was possible, and the intimacy in our marriage is better than ever. We are having deep conversations, and I feel like he is my safe place again. So don't give up hope. God really can heal these hurts, but sometimes we have to let our husbands feel the consequences of their actions instead of absorbing all of the negativity ourselves. What a great comment. Thank you for leaving that. I don't have much to add, except that that was brilliant. And that's exactly what I've been trying to say. Thanks for joining me for the To Love, Honor, and Vacuum podcast. I'm Sheila Ray Gregoire, hoping to point you to a marriage that is a passionate adventure rather than a to-do list. I feel like we've talked about everything under the sun today, but there's always so much more to say. So check out the blog at tolovehonorandvacuum.com for some extras for this podcast, as well as lots of other articles to help us build great marriages that go beyond the pat answers. Have a great week.